and welcome to the very first episode of Talking Who to You, a podcast dedicated to the Big Finish audio adventures of Doctor Who. My name is JG McQuarrie, and I'm here with my co-host, Kevin Kozer. Say hello, Kevin. Hey, what's up? Hey, doing good here. So, since this is the inaugural episode of our podcast, uh, I think it's a good idea if we maybe introduce ourselves and explain where we're coming from. Kevin, how did you come to Doctor Who, and what eventually led you to Big Finish? Well, let's see. I started with Doctor Who. A friend showed me to it in high school, and I was just taken with like the first two episodes of the new series, Rose and End of the World. And so by then, uh, the first three seasons had aired, so up to the Martha season. And I had set up a season pass on the DVR, remember those, and just was watching everything that sort of came through until I was caught up just in time for Donna. And then, yeah, I stuck with that. And then right after Donna, there was that uh, year-long hiatus where there was just like four episodes. So that was when I got into classic Who, sort of fill the void. And I have a kind of obsessive personality, so I was already like researching as much as I can, looking up all this weird stuff from older times that I had no exposure to. And then so yeah, and then, uh, big finish. I got to like a few years later, around the fiftieth, actually. Now I remember it was when uh, Moffat wrote Night of the Doctor, the McGann sort of short episode, and at the end of it, sort of slyly canonized all his big Finnish companions. And it's something I was aware of and sort of want to get around to. But once that happened, I was like, well, it's canon now. I have to check it out and see who this Charlie and Kayriz he was talking about was. And yeah, I've, been, I've kept listening to Big Finish ever since. I've been slowly working through it, listened to about... 130 stories off the main range now and a bunch of the spin-offs and yeah it's very rewarding most of the time most of the time i mean not every episode can be perfect but it is also it is also fantastic i've never known anybody uh, to have quite the enthusiasm for big finish that you have i know you've been writing your shorter reviews for it and that's also kind of where <laughs> the idea of this podcast came from as well because um i love it and i love big finish um, but it never seems to get the same kind of critical awareness that the TV show does. And I think that's a great shame because it's uh, when it's as good as the TV show, it, it can be good in completely different ways. But I think it deserves the same kind of respect and the same kind of analysis. So I'm kind of hoping that's where we're going to go with this. Oh, yeah. I definitely think Big Finish episodes are like have just as much merit as Doctor Who like TV stories. Like the same highs and lows, but they're, the fact that they're in the same ballpark when they're this sort of dubious canon material i mean you don't get that with like star wars where you have the three canon great films and then a bunch of novels of all over the place it's really unique the relationship between the two yeah i think it is something that's definitely unique um and the fact that so many people that have worked on big finish have gone on to work on on the tv show i think really speaks to the quality that big finish are capable of producing and the fact that they're capable of sort of incubating the talent that then goes on to to this the sort of parent show and i think that's really interesting as well so i think it's really interesting that so many of the writers have come through um, of course you've got nick briggs who does the voice of everything um, oh, and, yeah. there's, and there's been so much that's come out of big finish and sort of gone into the wider world whilst at the same same time big finish have also taken uh all the things which have been great about the tv show but which there's not necessarily the range to explore so you have the war doctor they've just announced the war master as we're recording this uh, which is something i'm super super psyched for oh, i think yeah. that's going to be such a cool thing i um, love jacobian is just like one episode but 
such yeah. a great taste of the character. Oh yeah, so fantastic. And I'm so thrilled that he's decided to do it. That's such a such a great thing for him to come back and do. But the fact that Big Finish are able to attract that kind of talent, of course, John Hurt was playing the War Doctor until he died. I mean, that really speaks to the kind of quality that I think Big Finish can put out. So hopefully we're going to come across some of that now. All right. So how did you get into Doctor Who? I'm a lifer. I was born in 1973, and since the moment I arrived on this planet, I have been a fan of Doctor Who. Uh, awesome. Yeah, my father was a bit of a sly fan, and, and so I was a good excuse for him to be able to sit down and watch it. And so it just gained momentum until it became this kind of all-consuming thing that I, I have in my life now. And I love lots of science fiction, especially TV science fiction. I'm a big fan of. But there is nothing that comes close to my love of Doctor Who. And it's something that's stretched through my entire life. So it's not going to go away now. So it's time to be fully embracing everything that it represents, to go full nerd and embrace the joys of Big Finish as well and, and move on with it that way. Yeah, and Doctor Who, I think, is one of those franchises that you can really reward being a lifelong fan and sticking with it for so long, because there's always content being produced for it. Even in the wilderness years, you had like, novels and then Big Finish, his early stuff. But like, and now, like, even if they stop making new TV shows, comics would keep coming out. Big Finish would keep going, obviously. Just there's so much you can consume, and all of it is pretty not all of it, but like so much of it is good. Yeah, and so much of it is fan-led as well, and it's that passion that the fans are able to bring to it. Mm-hmm. And I know there's this kind of running joke about, you know, the, the only thing that Doctor Who fans can agree on is the fact that they all hate Doctor Who. But I, str- <laughs> I strongly disagree with this characterization of Doctor Who fans. I think the fact that people are able to start something like Big Finish, as you say, write the comics, there are other audios that get produced, the sort of non-canon ones from small audio production companies across the world. The fact that fans can get so engaged and so built up into something I think really speaks to to how broad the, the whole Doctor Who universe is I'm very resistant to use the phrase Hooniverse that's I don't want to go down that line um, but it's there's just so much there and as you say about the wilderness years I'm, I'm old enough to remember them I'm old enough to remember the Virgin New Adventures and then eventually the EDAs when the McGann movie came out the first time all of that and through it all it was the fans that kept it going and of course it's the fans that have eventually been able to bring it back most obviously with Russell T. Davis. So, yeah, it's just such a wonderful thing to be a part of, and it's it's something that I will continue to enjoy until the day they put me in the ground, which hopefully will be a while from now. Um, so I think from there, we should probably dive right in. I think we should explain, um, firstly, that um, since Doctor Who doesn't follow any particularly rigid attempts at cr- uh, chronology, we're not going to either. So instead of starting right at the beginning with the Sirens of Time and working forward, we're instead going to jump around all over the place. So to begin with, we're going to begin with um, Paul McGann's first season of stories, Storm Warning, Sword of Orion, The Stones of Venice, and Minuet in Hell, which we are so looking forward to. Yeah. Honestly, that is a much better place to start than Sirens of Time, though, which is just really, that is definitely more of a made-for-the-hardcore fan story, whereas Storm Warning is such a great and intro. And it's not that Sirens of Time is necessarily bad, but it's not really anything special and as you say it is definitely targeted at the hardcore fans mm-hmm. so let's let's get right into it and what did you think of storm warning do you think it's a good introduction for mcgann's doctor and do you think it works as a story uh, i think as an introduction to mcgann's doctor and introduction to charlie it is like perfect for them encapsulates them almost exactly like how they will be and setting up their character arcs going forwards as a story it's a bit it's a very well structured story 
it's just some of those parts of the structures aren't as engaging as other. So like one thing I noticed, especially like focusing in on it, having listened to a lot of Big Finish now, I really sort of keyed in to how each of the four parts has their like own story to it, their own sort of key events turning around and they're sort of separate episodes in a way that well, some stories are just, and this happens, and this happens, and this happens, a break, and this happens, this happens, and this happens. So, like, you have the first episode with uh, just introducing the airship and just introducing the characters, and then the Vortosaur shows up. A second episode, dealing with the Vortosaur, learning with the aliens, and the ship shows up. And the third episode, all the backstory on the Triskeli, and then the Uncreator is going to attack, and then wrapping it up. And so, yeah, very neatly structured and just some parts a little more engaging than others. Yeah, to to an extent. I think I mean I think it's a fairly standard story structure. It's a four episode story of exactly the type that you would get through say the whole of of Tom Baker's mm-hmm. run. But the fact that each yeah. episode tends to be very self-contained, I think slightly disguises how traditional the structure of the episode is. And that's not a bad thing. I, I particularly I I quite like the fact that it's oh, yeah. able to move the story forward in sort of solid chunks. They're not it's not always the most graceful move between mm-hmm. stories, I think it would be fair to say. But the fact oh, that they're able sure. to really like give so much of the first episode, even though Paul McGann talking away to himself is incredibly stagey and a fairly hammy way of doing exposition, it still mm-hmm. gives him a chance to write, really say, okay, this is what my doctor is going to be like. This is the way that I'm going to deliver it. This is the kind of performance I'm going to give. And then once we have that established, we can move forward little by little. So then we get Charlie, then we get the characters in the R101. Then we finally get to the alien threat and so on and so on and so on. And I think that works really well, giving him the space to be able to establish his own sense of identity. Because given that he's only done, of course, the TV movie before this, there isn't a strong sense of identity that really came through that, I don't think. Unless you disagree, of course. Oh, yeah, no, this is definitely, like, I don't, I haven't seen the TV movie in a long time and don't really plan to revisit anytime soon, but there's definitely sort of, airheadedness is the negative way of putting it, sort of lightness and humor to him that sets him apart really early on with the talking to himself and like i think that sort of summarizes the good and the bad of the story is that the talking to himself is a very clunky and ham-handed way of getting through it but it gives you such a good insight into him and his character how very quick he is with the one-liner like his talking about the missing agatha christie page oh never know how it ends or then the dropping the hints about being hanging around mary shelley the sort of offhand what a terrible way to die when he talks about the people the crew stuck in the ship in the time loop like just he's so assured of himself and so sort of cavalier i think the fact that he is so assured in the role so early on is is genuinely remarkable if you listen to the performance that he gives in Storm Morning and you listen to the performance he gives in something much more recent like say Dark Eyes the similarity to the way that he performs it is absolutely amazing he's got such a degree of consistency in the way that he delivers the role and that's not true I don't think of every single doctor particularly Mm -hmm. I think Tom Baker's struggled to really get back into the role maybe in his first season after that he kind of hits his stride again but it took him a little bit of time to get back into it i think the same is maybe a little bit true of uh, sylvester mccoy as well although I, I do love sylvester mccoy's big finish work but but right from the word go you can hear how enthused mcgann is about doing the role you can tell that he knows he has something to prove and he sets out to do it from the first moment he opens his mouth i think it's a great performance from him Oh, yeah, for sure. And, like, the way he's characterized, it's very sort of 
proto knew who like almost Russell Davies esque before Russell T Davies. You have him like with the name dropping and the alienness to his character, but also the very sort of romantic ideals and the pushing to sort of be more human. It's all very nice. And I think one of the things that name dropping thing is really interesting, actually, because that's something I mean, lots of doctors uh, name drop, you know, Tom Baker was always had thousands of people that he'd met throughout history. And the sixth doctor had his huge list of business cards from everybody from A to Z and whatever. But there's something about the way that Paul McGann says, oh, he's met this person, or we were on a train together or something. He's just got this tiny little inflict. Yeah. yeah, like knowing he, he just there's something about it. You know, he's probably making it up in the spur of the moment, but you could almost believe him, and maybe he did. There's a real kind of subtlety to the way that he performs that. I really love that about the way he delivers those lines. Yeah, like this sort of way where <laughs> oh, we're all just friends, like calling like Agatha Christie and Lennon like close buddies from the old times. So if McGann is that good, do you think that India Fisher is able to match the strength of his performance? And do you think that she's able to really give Charlie the same degree of dimension in her first outing? Because we know from our perspective that Charlie's going to go on forever and ever. She's now in the second season of her spin-off. But do you think she really nails it from the first time out? I don't know if she has the same dimension as McGann, just if only because the Doctor has such a good, strong history behind him. But she definitely has, like the basics of the role down like the core of the character this cavalier adventurous like she's got it like the writer alan barnes knows exactly who he's writing and india fisher knows exactly how to deliver it uh, her delivery i'm trying to find notes but but some of the lines of her being so excited to be an adventurer even though this is her first time adventuring it's palpable it, she is so much enthusiasm and energy for everything that's happening around her and her chemistry began is instant like, they're both sort of these cavalier adventurers looking for the next dramatic thing to do. Even though he's a little more experienced than her, the enthusiasm is absolutely matched. Oh, yeah, I completely agree about the enthusiasm. And the way that she sparks off McGann is just, yeah, it's just an instant success. There was a couple of moments early on when I was getting a little bit worried about it. I hadn't listened to Storm Warning, I think probably since it was originally released or maybe just thereafter. And I remember Charlie being good in it. And there was a couple of moments early on where I was, she just almost slightly overplays it. It's almost like it's going to tip over into sort of early male territory because she's just so enthusiastic and it just won't stop but, but oh, yeah. she kind of tamps it down after a couple of scenes and then the real Charlie starts to come through I think so a little bit of a swerve away there for which I'm grateful. There's a lot of effort going on in the beginning like the music is also extremely overbearing the characters like Tamworth, Frailing and Rathbone are very one-dimensional in their first scenes before getting expanded later on but it seems I guess it sort of fits for a story that sort of reveals itself more and more as it unfolds. But yeah, there is the fear that she's will be like flat at first. But yeah, then once the once the doctor is in the proceedings, everything becomes more complicated and a lot more interesting. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, when she's just running around the R101 by herself, there's there's a slight sense <laughs> that, okay, well, we can see that this is a character that's going to get into trouble, then the Doctor's going to turn up. And that's okay, because that's a fairly standard piece of Doctor Who plotting. But it's just the moment that he does, it just suddenly comes alive in a way that's not necessarily obvious immediately before that point. But there's not so much material before that happens. So I think the story can kind of get away with it. 
Oh, yeah. And I think there's something very magical with that first introduction. When he is doing just name dropping the Conan Doyle and Lennon back to back, offering to hide her instantly, no matter like what kind of trouble she is or who she is, he's just immediately willing to help her out. Uh, she has a line where she calls him the oddest man she's ever met. And she introduces herself as Charlotte, but Charlie to my friends. The doctor responds, it's Charlie then. It's instant. Like, they're so in a platonic sort of love with each other from the moment they meet, and it's fantastic. Oh, yeah, the, the second that they start interacting, you can hear it. And I, again, I, it's such a small way, but the way that McGann says, it's Charlie then, and that's all you ever need to know. It's instant from that moment going forward. Mm-hmm. And that's that's such a gift of a line if you know how to deliver it. And I don't think it's something that necessarily every actor could have got away with. But the fact that he's able to deliver it with such a lightness of touch, but have so much kind of emotional force behind it for somebody, as you say, that he's only just met. I think that's a really amazing achievement. Oh, yeah. And then it comes back later at the end of the episode where he's so distraught about the idea that he'd have to take her back to the crashing ship and kill her, basically, in order to preserve history. And you know he won't, of course. Even if you didn't know that Charlie would be in the next story... Like, you just know he can bring himself to do that after the grand adventure they just had together, after how well they connected. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, But I want to leave the ending for a little while because I have a couple of things to say about the ending. So just going back slightly, how do you think those two characters then interact with the rest? Because it's not a really big cast for this story. There's only a few really decent characters that have meat in the bone. So how did you think that Rathbone worked? How did you think that the other characters sort of came alive through the play in the ways that they worked with uh, McGann and Fisher? I think Rathbone is pretty one-dimensional as villains go. Just he had a very slimy performance by uh, Barnaby Edwards, and that helps, but he is mostly just there to be a stooge for the uncreator prime and be sort of the sort of typical human who is like distrustful aliens, but is then manipulated by them as well. Two kind of stock Doctor Who tropes mashed together just to move the story along. I found Tamworth very interesting though, because he starts out as a very sort of a loud to very loud gentleman, very like keen on a drinking and all, and sort of admonishes Frailing for staying sober. Just seems very boastful of his accomplishment and of the grand thing he's about to do to make contact. But then he develops in this very dimensional character when he starts on the Triskelia ship talking about the war and the horror he's been through and how I would not want to relive it. And then his sort of sacrifice at the end gets a lot of meaning after that sort of development. I find him fascinating. What about you? Um, I think he's a really great character, and I am I am a long time Blake Seven fan. So Gareth Thomas to me is a little bit of a hero, and I love his performance in this role because it starts out so kind of plummy and one dimensional, and you think that you're mm-hmm. going to know everything about this character from the first couple of sentences. The fact that he's able to redeem himself, and not just redeem himself, but in a way that doesn't just seem like an obvious cliche. It comes from who the character is. He is plummy and he is for the Empire or whatever, but that's not all that he is. And it's his experiences having been part of the Empire, having fought in previous battles, that leads him away from the more 
more obvious kind of path. And I think it's a really, it's, it's not a big character arc, but I think it's really well put together. And I really love Gareth Thomas's performance. I, I, as I said, I'm, Blake Seven is kind of my dirty little secret because other than Doctor Who, it's my favorite science fiction show, even although I have so many other shows that I love. I love Blake Seven Beyond all measure and and Gareth Thomas of course is a big part of this so, but it's really nice to hear him step into another role and bring something else to it he's not just playing the same character which sometimes when you get these guest actors that that can be the case you know they're playing variations on the character that you already know he was in this haven't watched do this again and there's a sense that he's he's really pushing himself into a slightly different area. Yeah, I am not familiar with Big Seven, but I actually do know him as Kalendor from the Dalek Empire series. And that's another great role for him. Uh, oh yeah, of course, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, even when those stories weren't exactly working, he was pretty good. Yeah, I don't know if we'll ever cover Dalek Empire, but it might be quite an interesting one to come across at some point. There's some really interesting stuff in there, and there's some really, um, how can I put yeah. this politely, less interesting <laughs> stuff in there. It's very odd. It's very odd to talk about because it is so odd, but it's also maybe not a priority. <laughs> no, I think we have enough material to be working with for the time being. But yeah, I think I think uh, I think all of the main characters are basically well put together. I think that Barnaby Edwards' South African accent does deserve some criticism because it's awful. Uh, he's you're you're quite right when you say that he's giving a good slimy performances, but all those dolls and eth and all that else, it's just it pushes things a little bit too far. And the fact that he's the foreigner and the foreigner is basically the unreconstructed bad guy is really kind of clumsy writing. I think they should have done something there, either in the writing or in the script editing process, to kind of mitigate against that. Because especially in a story which is so obsessed with empire, so obsessed with kind of the imperial aspects of the British Empire, the fact that it's an unreconstructed bad guy is... with a very heavy South African accent is is really unfortunate. Yeah, well, thanks for telling us a South African accent, because I could honestly not place the whole story. (laughs) Generic foreign bad guy accent, but I think it was aiming for South Africa. Yeah, it was very, not a great accent, and yeah, like you said, the implications are not great as well. It's very unfortunate. No, well, and, it, and also the fact that at the end of the story, he just cannot manage to find a single spark of goodness mm-hmm. in him. He has to go through with being the bad guy right up until his own death. It's just, yeah, it, it, I wouldn't go so far as to call it racist, but it's really, really clumsy writing. Yeah, and especially like that whole final sequence where he's chasing the doctor with the alien weapon, it's just very so clumsy compared to like all the stuff with Triskele before, like there's a very great climax in them shouting, shouting down the uncreator prime and the uncreators because uh, they were not used to humans, not used to aggression. And that is a neat bow to the story. And then you have this, I, I understand why it's important to have the scenes where they've brought the gun onto the ship and are still planning on presenting it, but just the run around the ship where he's chasing them and snarling at them seems a little much. Yeah, it definitely seems much. And I I think, I hope, that the intent of those scenes is... Yeah, I think it's meant to be a contrast because we have the scenes with Tamworth and Tamworth turns his back on the greedy option. You know, he has the option if he wants to. He can complete his mission, he can take the ship back, he can, you know, fulfill what he was meant to do. He can follow his orders and he chooses not to. Whereas 
here we have somebody who's only capable of pursuing their greed, who can't give it up, who doesn't know when it's time to stop. I think that's the intent that the script is going for, to provide a contrast, but I don't think it really comes together. I think it's it's too underplayed and there's not really enough of a contrast between them to allow that mm-hmm. aspect to come through. It's there, but it's kind of very muddy, very muted. Yeah, I do think the scene right before then, where Freyling, especially is power comer of frailing is a sympathetic character for most of the story but he's the one who sort of says we need to bring this gun back to british empire you know screw tamworth sacrifice and more objections to this we're the ones who need to take this technology but at the same time we like it the whole chasing scene is unnecessary unnecessary extra action yeah exactly and then having him be the one who destroys the r101 is just a little bit too much of a mystery fulfilling itself I think it's also very difficult to do running through corridor scenes well on audio. And I think that's one of the things that you can tell they're inheriting certain things with the TV show and they haven't quite managed to find other ways of doing this. It's a little bit the same with the opening scenes in the TARDIS where uh, Paul McGann is just talking away to himself. We need the exposition, but the exposition is just him talking away to himself and just saying, ooh, that's a bad habit, isn't really enough to cover it. And it's and the same with running down corridor scenes. They are not a wise choice on audio. So what do you think of the R101 as a setting? Because it's a fairly unusual setting for something like this. It's, it's not a common... The era is fairly well visited now. But to have a setting like the R101, that's, that's pretty different. Yeah, I like what you're saying about running around corridors it's hard to sort of visualize that in a podcast in contrast though barnes does a great job visualizing the r101 with just having characters find natural ways to describe things like the doctor at first thinking he's in the belly of a whale but then realizing the ribs are mechanical and he's it's usually a great picture of sort of the hull he's trapped in and the characters will often go on like small little tangents talking about technology holding the ship afloat or uh, give a quick offhand but reason to sort of describe the room they're in. And it's it's a very good job painting a picture of what it looks like. So it makes for a very like sort of fascinating setting in that way. Very easy to sort of visualize, which I really appreciated. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. I think the geography of the ship is really easy to understand. And I think that's a very difficult thing to do when you really have nothing except mm-hmm. people describing things at you. And and the way that it's able to, yeah, you get a feeling for the stateroom and some of that of the production as well. I think it, the sound production in this is pretty good. So you have a sense of space when, oh, when, they're, sure. when they're all having their drinks and things feel much more cramped when they're in the cabins. That maybe goes a little bit awry once they get to the young creators and everything is just swamped in echo. But certainly on the R101 itself, I think the the production really helps to back up the sense of space that they're in and and kind of adds to the way that people are able to sort of fairly nonchalantly describe their surroundings. Yeah, and the sort of, I guess not locked room, but uh, separate sort of setting where you can't enter or leave does a good job sort of claustrophobing in the characters. So you're just, you're stuck with that Tamworth and Frailing and Rathbone in weeks. And and Charlie's running for them, but there's no real like escape in those early parts until you get to the Triskelia ship. And I think that's it keeps everyone together. It has a reason for them to all be interacting with the patient in room 43 and 
all of that. I also don't think it falls back into the cliches of a sort of base under siege, which I think it could quite easily do. I mean, it is essentially that. They're trapped in a singular location. There isn't any way out. The TARDIS is gone. It's been flushed out. There isn't really any way that they can get off this. So it could feel like it's just another reiteration of base under siege. And especially as this is fairly early on in Big Finish's run, you know, there are a lot of tropes which are being hit, which are fairly familiar to long-term fans. But I don't think it ever really quite feels like that. I think it's a real achievement that they're able to use a very constrained location, but without it just feeling like something that we've come across a thousand times before. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's not based on siege because there's no siege. Instead, it's much more like what Tamworth is setting out to do, a diplomatic mission. They come out, they meet the alien, they have a meeting of minds, and then it goes to shit, and then they find a way to fix it all. And But it's never like a shooting action scene, except for that pretty bad climax I was talking about before, it's very much more philosophical in nature, which I find pretty like fascinating and it makes it stand out. Yeah, definitely. And I really like the fact that Tamworth is so committed to this idea of diplomacy. It's not just something that he's paying lip service to, and it's not just something that's convenient for him to say in order to try and persuade the doctor to his side. And again, I think that comes from the character's past. It comes from his history and the way that he's able to have his character be explicable in terms of the experiences that he's already had. He's not somebody who just thinks diplomacy is an easy way to win over some natives. It's something he really believes in. He doesn't want to go back to this kind of war and this kind of suffering that he's seen before. So I think that side of it is very well handled. Oh, for sure. And that's just what's make Tamworth such a strong character is like how you have the hints of him being out of mind with Rathbone, Rathbone is subordinate. But then as the contrasts come out with the Triskaley meeting, he becomes so much more fleshed out. I guess we should talk about the Triskaley now. They're such a interesting alien race, sort of a gimmick to them, but it does a good job highlighting the plot, or at least the themes of the plot. Yeah, definitely. I think they're a, a very interesting race to choose as a kind of first encounter for McGann. We know that the next story, he's going to meet mm-hmm. the Cybermen for the first time. And in a way, there's maybe a more natural tendency to go with something that will be familiar to fans because, of course, we're going to have a certain reaction to sort of monsters that we know coming back. It would give McGann an obvious way to sort of get his foot in the door, just like the Daleks were used with Patrick Triton and so on. So I think it's really interesting that they make the decision to not go down the more obvious route and come up with something completely different. And the fact that they're a trinity is quite interesting. The fact that the roles are so very divided is interesting. I think there's a lot of dimension. I think they probably could have spent a little bit more time exploring that, to be honest, because I think there's a lot of interesting material there, and I'm not sure that we really get all the way through what could be done with that race. And in a way, it's kind of a shame that we haven't seen them again. Yeah, it's it's kind of hard because they you have to sort of keep them secret for the first half of the story to have the big reveal of the Flying Saucer in Episode 2. But at the same time, like, Episode three is just all exposition about the race, pretty much front to back. And so it's hard to strike a balance. Like, you want more, but it can't sort of bog down the story. They need to sort of, I guess, be in more and be more central to it. Yeah, I 
I think that's really what I'm arguing for. I think if they were just slightly more central and we saw more of what they can do rather than simply being told about what they could do, I think that would maybe sort of help to flesh them out. But of course, you're right, the third episode is almost entirely exposition about them. So we do learn a lot of information, but that's not quite the same as actually seeing them get on and do stuff. We really have to wait till episode four before we start to get a bit more momentum on that side. And then we get everybody bellowing at each other, which is unfortunate. Yeah. It's uh, it's clever. I like it when Doctor Who goes for the clever solution rather than the shooting solution, but it is a little weird. I think on paper, it's an excellent idea. I, I completely agree with you. I like the fact that they try and find a different solution. It's not just about picking up guns, and of course that fits into the story, that fits into Tamworth Ark. I, I definitely agree with that. It's just that most of the actors involved aren't really that great at shouting at the top of their voices and making themselves sound convincing. Even McGann struggles slightly. And, and, yeah. and that's, that's normally a bad sign. If somebody that talented is struggling with it, it's maybe not the best idea. Yeah, and then also, it's just so rushed. Like, oh, the creators they seem sort of scared of us. Let's yell at them. Oh, they're gone. Exactly. It's, it's a bit perfunctory, especially given that we've been given such a build-up to how they're going to be, and they're going to be, you know, this like, amazing race. Oh, well, we can just shout at them and they'll go away again. It kind of makes them seem like small children. Yeah. <laughs> it's very unfortunate, but it's kind of... This isn't like a typical Doctor Who story at all, like, because at least not what you would expect. I guess no Doctor Who story is typical but uh, the fact that it's so much more about the emotions behind interacting with this race instead of any like actual physical conflict yeah no i agree and i really do like the fact that they take the time to to have that kind of emotional engagement with it that that makes them feel like they're a bunch of aliens that are actually worth spending time with but there's still something slightly perfunctory about the way that they're defeated the ideas are good but the execution maybe could have done with a little bit more fleshing out and i think it's also slightly a sign of just how early on we are in big finish this was really 16 years ago and there weren't a lot mm -hmm. of big finish stories before this so there are definitely still lessons being learned, I think, in the way that you can bring new races in, the way that you can describe them, the way that you can work with them. I think they deserve all the credit in the world for trying to put the Triskeli together in this way. It's just not quite 100% successful. Oh, yeah. Now you're reminding me of another big fly have the story, which nestled in the exposition is that long story about how they discovered the Engineer Prime and uh, first made contact with it and like the introduction is entirely off-screen character of Madame Zelda, who could somehow psychically interface with oh, that. Oh yeah, that, and none of that is actually that was really really strange. Why is any of that in there? I don't know. It's I like I said, it must just be growing pains or big finish, and for Alan Barnes, the writer, just trying to figure out like like it must have been a completely different story he had in mind, and sort of retrofitting onto there. But he had this like great idea in his mind, but because you can't send the Doctor and Charlie back to that period in time of the story it has to be explained but you just at that point you just have to cut your losses if you can't show the action you shouldn't spend 15 minutes telling it yeah exactly it, it just feels like it's been tacked on and maybe it's like one of those classic examples of this episode underrun by five minutes so you know we'll just stick this little bit of extra something in there and that'll give us the running time we need which doesn't really make sense for big finish because it's not yeah, like they're stuck with a specific running time but it still has that slight feel of something's missing something's under running ah that'll do which is 
crazy because that third episode runs 10 minutes longer than the other yeah three. it is and you so, feel it when you're listening to it as well you don't miss the fact yeah. that that's a long episode that you're going through yeah it's like it must just be growing pains a writer he needed some sort of felt compelled to have some sort of explanation for why the engineer prime came to british custody over explained it in his brain and didn't really have the sort of Rarely knowledge to figure out how to condense that or simplify it to make a good story. Yeah, I think that's probably exactly the explanation. I don't think it derails the story, but it's it's another one of those things oh, no. which, you know, in in retrospect, yeah, that that could have definitely been handled better. So yeah, that's I guess a pretty good sum up of uh, which is scaly. I guess now I kind of want to talk about the web of time and how that like factors into the whole story and going forward how big of a presence that will be. Yeah, the Web of Time stuff here is interesting, I think. I, I, I like the way that it's set up. It's, I mean, it's very clearly set up as going to be something which is going to be influential for a while. I don't think the first time I listened to this, I ever realized just quite how long it was going to run for or quite how far oh, the impact yeah. was going to be felt. But yeah, it's, it's well set up. You can feel that the Doctor is starting to quest something out. We have, as you mentioned earlier on, that big sort of dramatic speech that McGann has to give about, oh my God, I might have to kill Chuck. Oh, she's fine. Um, there's, you know, but you can, <laughs> you, there's still, there's enough sort of portents of doom in it that you know that this isn't just something which is going to go away. And the way that that links in with the Vortisaur as well, that's kind of, you know, almost a sort of symbolic representation of the start of this. Um, I think it's interesting what they're trying to do with it. And I, it feels like something that at this point, Doctor Who hasn't really tried before. Coming forward to the new show, we, we know about fixed points in history and all these other things. But at that point, it's not really something that Doctor Who has fully embraced. So I think it's interesting that they've chosen to do that first time out with McGann. Yeah, it's definitely a bold move for a show that's usually dropped the Doctor in time period, haven't run around. Uh, now, even as far back as the Aztecs, you'd have the first Doctor looking at about how they can't take major changes in history. But at the same time, they can like perform in the court of Nero and accidentally lead to the burning of Rome and not change too much. So it's very interesting to have the Doctor be very concerned about it here and then uh, set up the bad news of Charlie being around with the Vortazor and the alien weapon, and the Doctor insisting that these incontinuities can't be around. It does sort of annoy me a little bit, though, because the Doctor is always running around and accidentally saving lives with interference, but Charlie has to be different for some reason. Like, he's very adamant that there has to be 54 corpses at the R101, but I, I don't think the script does a good job underlying why. Yeah, I completely agree with that, and I think it's one area where this story really falls down. Apart from anything, a few people did survive the R101 crash. It's e yeah, that's bring that everyone too. didn't die. So either pick a tragedy where everybody did die or find some way of explaining why the fact that Charlie didn't die here is so very crucial. And I mean, we know going forward how catastrophic this is going to be. And I don't want to talk too much about stories that we haven't reached or we haven't covered yet. But, you know, this is going to be a big deal. So why? I think not to get too far ahead, but they never really do a good job explaining why Charlie surviving has such a big impact on history as opposed to the thousands of other lives the Doctor saves, millions at some episodes. So it's very peculiar but it does lead to some interesting stuff. Oh, yeah. That, 
like uh, not to get too far ahead, but like Neverland's a great story, and so there is some good thing that comes out. Oh of yeah, it. definitely, and it's it's the start of that movement in Doctor Who where they start to take the consequences of what happens seriously. So you, in a way, this is almost kind of a, <laughs> like a proto example of the way that Russell T Davis used uh, Bad Wolf or Torchwood, layering these kind of cons- inconsistencies. Uh, caused by Charlie's survival through story after story and then gradually it builds and builds and builds and then eventually we get the big kind of end of season finisher with as you say Neverland and you know that the same kind of big dramatic oomph that you're supposed to get in Parting of the Ways or something like that so I think it I think it does work in terms of a sort of proto example of the way that the show is going to go oh yeah like the arc of Charlie is really great and I'm excited to be covering it it's just this first uh, kickoff of it just doesn't seem to hold up so much. But I can buy, like, I have to buy a lot of things in Doctor Who, starting with a time and space machine just as the police box. So I can, I guess, buy this going forward. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I think the, I think the reason that the, the story can more or less get away with it is that because it works in an emotional level. Because we've had that connection between the Doctor exactly. Who, between the Doctor and Charlie all the way through the story because you immediately know how close they are because there's such a great rapport between Paul McGann and India Fisher. You know that this is going to be something important. And so the emotional context of it works, even if the kind of sci-fi explanation side of it is a little on the lacking. Yeah, I think Neverland's a really great conclusion to this arc. I do think that uh, Big Finish trying to experiment in this sort of more serialized storytelling, which I've been dabbled in before in things like Key to Time, but never on this sort of character scale here. And it's a great example of what would be carried over into the 2005 show. Yeah, definitely. And it's the fact that it's based so much in character, which makes it the success that it eventually becomes. And the fact that both Paul McGann and India Fisher are able to work so well together and invest so much in a relationship, which could, again, on paper, come across as a little bit schmaltzy or a little bit corny or cheesy. But because you really believe that these characters care about each other so much, they're able to give that emotional investment that means that you can believe in this kind of story going forward. Yeah, definitely. Doc- the Eighth Doctor and Charlie are one of the stronger companion pairings, and it's so good to see them get all this focus from the line. Yeah, I think they are one of the great companion pairings. And I think it's really interesting that you mentioned earlier on about the way that their first scene together sparks so well, because I don't think that scene really gets a lot of credit. And I know we've talked about it a few times, and I know that we've talked about the way that the actors work so well, but it really is one of the great companion first meetings. And it's it's so nicely underplayed, and it's just the foundation on which everything else is built. If you don't believe that moment and you don't believe the way the two characters work within this story, you're not going to believe any of the rest of it. And there are going to be so many stories which are dependent on the way that these two characters work together. So it gives it such a a nice resonance and such a nice start to this story arc that they're so committed to each other. And yet we still have these portents of doom. We still have the Doctor expressing doubt. Oh, yeah. And I think it's to the strengths of the both characters that it starts out very platonic. It's not um, like very strongly platonic. It's not as uh, wrapped up in romance as some of the Davies companionships would be, nor is it uh, kind of as uh, clinical as some classic pairings might have been. It's this very nice balance that some of the great other Doctor companion pairings like Ten and Donna and uh, could also strike. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I think Rose is an obvious point of comparison here as well, because there's a similar arc going forward. Um, But I think the way that Charlie and the Eighth Doctor 
work together is is much more subtle mm -hmm. of course they have more time and we have more episodes with them than we have with either rose or nine with nine or ten but there's still there's a similarity to the way that their emotional arc develops with their doctors but i really like the way that charlie's given that strength to and that space to be able to breathe and to become her own thing and and i don't want to say that she becomes an equal but she's such a strong personality and india fisher is so good at being able to imbue her with dimension that she i really think she becomes one of the one of the best companions that there is in doctor who oh yeah definitely way up there with uh some of the greats as one big talent a big finish especially early on they created some truly amazing companions I'd love to get to talk about Evelyn and uh, Aramem sometime in the future, too. Oh, for sure. I cannot wait to talk about Evelyn because Evelyn is probably, well, she's probably in my top five companions in any Doctor Who medium whatsoever. I love Evelyn so much. And I know that that's not an original sentiment, but of course, she is just fantastic. I guess in conclusion, this is a, it has some bumps, some growing pains, but it's a very strong start. And like, at least in the most vital part of setting up these characters, it does it magnificently. So I think it's, there's some growing pains to the story to start with, but in the most important job of setting up the doctor and Charlie, it does this magnificently and it sets up a lot of great stories to come. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I think the emotional content of the story here works a little bit better than the sci-fi plotting of the story, but because the emotional part of the story is really key to everything here, I think that's probably a forgivable sin. This isn't the strongest story that Big Finish have ever delivered, but I mean, as far as Paul McGann's concerned, it could not have gone better. He is so brilliant here. He absolutely knocks it out of the park. And we get Charlie, who's almost immediately a fantastic companion. So there's really, as far as the characters are concerned, nothing to complain about here. Uh, for sure. It is definitely a great Great start and honestly i'd recommend storm warning as like a first big finish for like most everyone because it does a lot of what it, it does well even past the flaws you get so many of the highlights of what big finish can do constrained like free from the constraints of a tv budget and free to do its own thing and free to create its own very fascinating and great original characters and explore these underexplored doctors and the fact that uh, the eighth doctor is going to have such a terrific run going forward just makes this all the more worthwhile. You need to know what happens in this story to know what's going to happen with the Eighth Doctor going forward, but it's worth listening to even without that. All right. Anyway, that's just about it for Storm Warning. I think we've probably covered everything we're going to hear. Thanks for joining us on our very first outing, and we hope that you'll be back with us to discuss the Eighth Doctor's encounter with the Cybermen next time out in Sard of Orion. Kevin, would you care to tell people how they can contact us? Of course. Uh, we have a Twitter, at TalkingWho2U. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter at Kevyko, that is K-E-V-V-Y-K-O. And we also have an email address, you at gmail.com. If you have any questions for us, feel free to send them. And that's about it. Yeah, please feel free to get in touch with us as much as possible. We would love to hear from you. We would love to hear what you think, any suggestions, any questions for us, and anything else that you want to cover related to the wonderful world of Big Finish. So until next time, keep talking.